And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we sang earlier, uh, ponder anew what the Almighty will do. And uh, we ask that, that, would, that you would enable us to do that uh, today, uh, this morning, during the preaching of the Word and, and having heard the Word, that we would ponder new possibilities of what it means to be followers of Jesus, if indeed we are. And if we're not, Lord, that we would ponder anew what life would look like if we were to trust him. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are at work, that you're with us. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm aware of uh, my shortcomings, which are um, no small thing. Uh, so, Lord, we need you to be uh, at work in the preaching, uh, working in our hearts, causing us to die to self and live to you and uh, love you, trust you, uh, live our lives following you. Lord, we need a lot of help with that. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work. So, Holy Spirit, come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 15 years ago, a movie came out that, that I liked a lot called Stranger Than Fiction. It was, as far as I know, Will Ferrell's first non-comedic uh, movie role. And in it, he plays uh, a senior auditor for the Internal Revenue Service named Harold Crick. And he is not your average... IRS agent, he is something like a super agent. Uh, he is, he's, he's kind of famous around the office for getting more audits done and getting more out of audits than any other agent in the office. His, uh, he is, um, you know, kind of a walking U.S. federal tax code. He doesn't even have to look it up. He just knows it. Coworkers stop him in the office to get him to do quick calculations because they know that he can do it in his brain faster than what they can do at their desk with a calculator. Um, you know, and the other thing about him is that he's not just like that at work. You know, he is like that all the time in every arena of his life. I mean, his, his, he, his apartment is, is, uh, looks like what you might see from an accountant. It is completely Marie Kondoed. There is not, you know, any extraneous anything in it. His, his closet is stocked with neatly pressed dark suits, white shirts, black shoes, and his, 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 his accountant identity goes so deep that he cannot even brush his teeth without accounting for the number of strokes it takes uh, each morning and each night. He has decided that the optimum number of strokes is 76. 38 times back and forth, 38 times up and down. He goes with the single Windsor instead of the double Windsor to save time in the morning. He knows the exact second he needs to leave his house to catch the, 18, the 815 bus. He knows it takes 57 steps to get to the bus stop. Every night he goes to bed at exactly 11.15. He ha leads a life that is completely ordered, accounted for, and controlled down to the smallest detail until, until one morning when he's brushing his teeth, counting his strokes, as usual, instead of hearing his own internal monologue, all of a sudden another voice breaks in. And begins to narrate his life. Of course, that disturbs him. He goes to a therapist who hears the story. The therapist says, well, it's simple. You've had a mental breakdown because you're hearing voices. And at that point, Harold Crick pushes back. He goes, actually, you don't understand. It's, it's, it's not simply that I have a voice speaking to me. I have a voice that is speaking about me. And with that, the plot takes a radical turn from a life 
where he imagines himself to be the, drivers, the driver of the plot of his life to an adventure where he discovers, sets out to discover the larger story of his life. And we're, we're continuing in this letter to the Colossians, a letter that is really about living in light of the larger story. What it looks like to live as one in Christ, whatever that may look like, wherever you may happen to live, and to begin to understand what that means requires something like the realization Harold Crick came upon. That none of us are, in fact, the great accountant and controller of our lives. But instead, we must come to grips with having been accounted for. We must come to grips with the larger story. We must come to grips that we are people to whom the author has not only spoken about, but, but is actually spoken to through God's word. Now, in this passage, just before this, in fact, Paul actually describes the very moment in which the, the voice of the author is spoken into the life of the believer so as to change it forever. Uh, it's, it's right there in verse 6. Greg spent quite a bit of time on it last week, and I think it's a verse that's pretty vital to hang on to this week and maybe beyond this week. And the verse is this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Well, what does that mean? I think it means just this. Experience the Christian life on the same terms you entered the Christian life. Experience the Christian life on the same terms you entered the Christian life. Now, that's profound stuff when you think about it. Um, when you think about especially what it looks like to enter the Christian life. Uh, you know, we're not halfway through this letter, and Paul has already described more than once what entering into the Christian life looks like in the life of every single Christian. Um, now, that's not to say that our circumstances uh, aren't different when we come to faith. Uh, some of us grew up in Christian homes, and we can't remember a time that we didn't trust in Jesus as our Savior. Others of us have really dramatic kind of memorable, life-altering episodes in our life where that was the time where we came to put our faith in Jesus. But, but varying as those circumstances may be, the story is the same for every Christian. So Paul reminds the entire church of how each and every one of them came to receive Jesus. In chapter 1, he reminds them that Jesus transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son by grace. He reminds them of what was going on with each and every one of them before they came to, to faith in Jesus. And, and, and what's true of each and every one of us before we came to faith in Jesus was that we were alienated from God, hostile in mind toward him, busy doing evil deeds, verse 21, chapter 1. And, and just in general, here in verse 13, Paul says, essentially, we were all, you want to know what we were doing before Christ came? Here's what we were doing. We were being dead in our sins and trespasses. That's what we were all doing. When it comes to coming to faith in Jesus, that is to say, no one had a leg up. No one had a foot in the door. No one had connections. No one had excellent credit. No one had platinum status. The gospel came as light into darkness, as peace into hostility, as life into death. 
It came by grace through the gift of faith so that you were made alive and able to receive him. That's the true story of everyone who's ever come to faith in Christ. That's the only way anyone ever entered into a relationship with Jesus. And Paul says again here, that's the only way to experience a relationship with Jesus in an ongoing way. So that just as you received him by grace through faith, so walk in him by grace through faith. Now, Paul's tone here indicates that it's not merely sort of possible to forget that, but, but actually that we're prone to forget that. He gets pretty intense in verse 8. He urges them to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, you know, as I thought about that verse this week, I just thought, well, what is this? Um, is it a warning? Is it a plea? And, and I decided that the answer to that is yes. It is both a warning and it is a plea. To, to tell someone to see to it is to urge vigilance, right? Um, you know, I, almost all, my, all but one of my children have driver's licenses now, right? Um, I, I plea with them when they go out in the car. You know, I urge vigilance. Watch out. You know, don't go immediately when the light turns green. Look around first, right? Um, that's a plea, but it's also a warning that there's danger out there. So, you know, Paul is doing something like that here. Like, whatever you do, by all means, make sure this particular thing happens by virtue of your vigilance. And baked into that is the warning that, that if you're not vigilant, something very dangerous could happen. Now, being captivated by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, certainly does not sound good, does it? But, but the question is, what does that mean? What, what is the danger that's being described here, and why does it require such vigilance? Well, first of all, let's remember that to be a Christian, as Paul says repeatedly in this letter, is to be in Christ. It is to have been transferred from life outside of him, which is called darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son. Those are facts. Uh, that ha if you are a Christian, that is what has happened there. And there's no suggestion here that having been transferred from darkness into light, you can be transferred back to the darkness. So what that means is Paul's not talking about security and salvation being threatened, but instead what's being, what, what is being threatened is the experience of growing in the grace of Jesus, flourishing in faith so that you're enjoying him, so that you're blessing others. And Paul uses a little play on words here. It doesn't come through in English, but it's worth our attention because it gives us a sense of where we're going and helps us describe the danger he's describing here in the potential of being taken captive. He uses a word in Greek for taken captive that sounds like this, sulagogon. Now that word sounds a lot like another Greek word, which is the word for synagogue. So, you know, Paul's making a little play on words here like, don't go from the kingdom back to the synagogue. Don't enter the kingdom by grace and then attempt to experience the kingdom by law. And, and 
Paul was battling this kind of thing all the time in Colossae, most famously probably in Galatia, where there were people around urging this upon Christians, basically say, okay, now that you've received, it, now that you've received Jesus, get back to the synagogue. Get back to the law. Take this thing seriously. Now, if you're a Christian, this is an interesting thing to ponder, I think, to ask yourself, or, or maybe other Christians, when was the time? When was the time in your Christian life when you felt most joyful, most free, where you were captivated by a deep sense of wonder and gratitude for grace because salvation had come to you in Jesus Christ? When was that time? And, and I've thought about that myself. I've asked others that over the years. And very often, the answer is something like this. When I first became a Christian, that's when I felt the deepest sense of wonder, the greatest sense of joy. I felt the most freedom, the greatest gratitude for grace. And, and you know, you, you think about that and you go, well, that's the stuff of when I entered. And yet, the call here is to be growing in joy and freedom, and wonder, and gratitude for grace. So how does this phenomenon happen? How, does it, how is it that, you know, the greatest sense of wonder at my salvation is, is, is a memory and not a present experience? Well, I think it happens because we become convinced in one way or another that while grace is sufficient to get you in, it is not sufficient to carry you through. So we go back to our little inner synagogue that says, well, it's time to get serious. Grace isn't sufficient. It is time to prove myself. It is time to work and to perform so that, you know, I will quell a, a, an, a disquieted conscience so that I'll stay in God's good graces so that I'll progress in the Christian life, grow in holiness, all kinds of things, right? Paul calls that phenomenon empty deceit. A promise for life where there actually is no life. A lie that works directly against the good news of the gospel, that fullness of life is to be found in the grace of Jesus Christ, always and forever, and nowhere else. And to put a finer point on it, Paul makes clear that this isn't from the Lord, but is instead according to human tradition, and that it has a kind of a life of its own, that he describes empty deceit as something that's sort of aggressive, Almost like it's a living, breathing thing that, that will pursue you according to the elemental spirits of the world. It's always kind of trailing you. And yet, as empty and deceptive and aggressive as this challenge to living by grace is, what's common to all of it, Paul just says it's not according to Christ. So, you know, I think that's why Paul doesn't digress into 47 chapters of apologetics, right, at this point. He doesn't talk about, you know, well, let's, let's, let's dig into how to engage with the empty philosophy or to counter the deceit or to combat the human traditions or conquer the elemental spirits of the world. Instead, he goes, he does what he always does. He just goes back to the gospel. He, he says, he calls them back to the gospel and says, I want you to be rooted in it, firmly established. I don't want you to ever get over it. It's, it's not really enough to simply be warned. Paul always woos them back to the gospel, the good news. Brought back to the complete and utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ in whom Paul says, 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, who is the head of all rule and authority. Martin Luther said that when the, do- when, when the doctrine that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ falls, everything falls with it. Every other doctrine flows from that so that, he says, it alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist even for one hour. It is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. That's the thrust of the matter here, that, that you'll never find more than you need outside of him. Which is why Paul says that to be a Christian is to have been filled in him. If you're filled, do you, need to be, do you need more? When my gas tank is full, I don't go to the gas station. It's full. To be filled is to have all you'll ever need. So that, so that it becomes abundantly clear that when you find out that the one who fills you is himself the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, it's clear you don't need more than that. Now, for a while, Paul's been celebrating the supremacy of Christ. I think that first chapter is almost like a hymn to the greatness of Jesus. He's been celebrating that. But here, there's a little bit of a pivot to something like savoring the supremacy of Christ in your life, finding your security in it. Now, that's easy to say, but we struggle, right? Um, we're restless creatures. I was talking to someone in the office this week about, you know, just, I look at my dog and he is just content in his dogness. He doesn't, he's not restless. He, you know, he doesn't think beyond, you know, at least I don't think he does. He sleeps great. He's just a dog, you know? He's not looking for more than that. But, but the problem with human beings is our hearts are like more machines. They, they always want more. More money, love, security, success, holiness, forgiveness, mercy, hope, respect. You know, we could go on all day about all the desires of the heart. Blaise Pascal wrote in 1670, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Right? And that rest, Paul wants us to hear here, comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says to your heart and mine, look no further. All the riches of love and security and purity and uh, forgiveness and mercy and hope is there. Not only is there no greater satisfaction for our more machines than what is in Him, we, we come to find out, in fact, that He is the more for whom we were made. He actually orders our affections. You can, you can enjoy a marriage more when you're not trying to derive your entire life and identity from it, right? or whatever other good gift God may have given you. He is the more for whom we were made. And Paul not only states that as sort of a foundational principle, an existential principle, but he presses further to explore what it would look like to actually relish and rely on the supremacy of Jesus Christ in everyday life. What does that look like? Well, he goes into lawyer mode at this point, and he calls upon a witness to bear testimony. Uh, He identifies the witness. He calls the witness the circumcision made without hands. The circumcision made without hands has a testimony. 
And the testimony is that every follower of Jesus Christ has been buried with him in baptism and also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's the testimony. And we might be wondering how it is that, you know, all of a sudden circumcision and baptism become the topic of conversation. And not only that, but how do they connect? Well, for starters, it's important to know that, that circumcision for Paul is, is representative of the law. It's emblematic of the law, um, of, the, of the philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the element of, spiritual, of, of spirits of the world in, in this particular way. That there are folks out there saying if you want to get to Christ and stay in Christ, you've got to come through the, the door of the law. You've got to come through something like circumcision. You know, in other words, fulfill your obligation to the law of Moses, and then you'll find Jesus. Or once you've found Jesus, make, make good and sure that you're always fulfilling your obligation to the law. And that idea is thoroughly repudiated in the Bible. Never more firmly than in Galatians 2.21, a, a, a verse that I still cannot, you know, apprehend fully. It's so strong. Paul says there that he does not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I just want to let that hang there for a second. In other words, imagine a scenario, a way of living where you were living as if Christ's death was pointless. Where it was just another afternoon execution 2,000 years ago that meant really nothing. That we're, we're one to set aside the grace of God, imagining that righteousness could be attained by obedience to the law. That is, what, that is the way we live. We live as if Christ died for nothing. And yet, Paul doesn't say here that you don't have to be circumcised. Instead, he says something quite radical. He says, your faith in Jesus Christ indicates you already have been. The law's been fulfilled. You have been given a circumcision made without hands. You have upon your life and in your heart the circumcision of Christ. That is to say that Christ has fulfilled the law down to the last jot and tittle for you and for me. That has been filled up. And in him you have been set apart. You've been made holy unto the Lord. And with his death your sin has died even as with his resurrection righteousness you now live. You see what the law of circumcision pointed to and pictured and promised you have come to if your faith is in Christ into full possession in your baptism. The law was given as the sign, not the destination. It was given as something like a lever, not as life, to get you to Jesus, to find fullness in him. So take any part of it, and you are falling short if you stop at it and don't get to Jesus. Its destination is Jesus. So temple worship, you know, Jesus said, tear, this you know, tear the temple down in three days, I will raise it back up. What's he talking about? His own body. We worship in him. He's our place of worship. The sacrifices point to the supreme sacrifice in him. We don't need those sacrifices anymore. He, he is our Sabbath rest. He is a true and eternal rest. The kosher laws point us to him, to a greater purity, which he has secured for us. He is our, 
one eternal, perfect, and powerful king, our supreme prophet, our sinless priest, and whom, through whom we have access to the Father as his children. On and on and on. The fullness is in him. So, so just to understand this, I want to give you kind of an, an analogy, okay? Imagine that you are in the military and that you have been deployed and you've been posted halfway around the world. And you take all your stuff with you, but, but you know, one of your most precious personal items is you take a picture of your spouse with you. And you're off in some desert tent, and next to your table you have the picture of your spouse. And every night before you go to bed, you kiss that picture, and you say, I love you. And that is a, you know, that's a beautiful sign of devotion, right? But then the day comes when you, when you get the orders to to leave that place halfway around the world, to come home, and then, you know, the plane lands and the tar you hit the tarmac and the stairs come down and you walk down and there, waiting on the tarmac for you, is your spouse. And, and you know, you're finally reunited, but, but instead of running to your spouse, you reach in your pocket and you take out the picture and you kiss it again and you stare into its eyes and you say, I love you so much, ignoring the real thing. What was once appropriate and beautiful and a great sign of love and devotion, you know, in that moment becomes something kind of twisted and sick, right? That is what Paul is describing when we embrace the law as life instead of as that which would point us to life. You know, and, and the warning here, the plea is stop kissing the picture. Run to the real thing. Enter the real embrace. He's here. And look, I, I doubt that many of us have been tempted to run toward the actual Mosaic law in order to become good Christians, but, but I, I'd venture to say that the idea that even as faith gets you in the Christian life, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we need to get us through it is alive and well in your heart and mind. You know, there are devotional practices that must be sustained lest we fall out of favor. There are childhood educational models that must be embraced. There, there are beverages and foods to be avoided. There's music to be listened to. There's music to avoid. There's seminars to attend. There's social causes to join. There are political platforms and candidates that must be supported at all costs. And there's a million other things that, you know, and, the, and, and that's not to say that there's no good in those things. I, that's not the point. The point is when we begin to imagine that there is life in them, when we begin to imagine that authentic, faithful Christianity necessitates faith in Jesus plus this, that, or the other. And Paul says when that happens, it is as if you have been kidnapped, thrown into the back of a van, and driven away from Jesus. And if there were any doubt about, as to the seriousness of this, I want to notice what he, how he talks about this as something of a war. Uh, critically, a war that has been won by Jesus. But, but in, the, in the same way that it makes no sense to, to kiss the picture, to embrace the sign that point to Jesus while ignoring Jesus because he's already fulfilled the law, it makes no sense to engage in the struggle that Jesus has already won for us. So he, so he pivots here to explain the saving work of Jesus as something like a military conquest. He explains that his death on the cross was an act of disarming rulers and authorities, putting them to shame, triumphing over them. 
And, you know, that language, I think, is more specific than, than we might realize at first. I mean, at the time, to the people Paul was writing to, that would have meant something very specific to them. And, and what it would have meant is it's, it is descriptive of a Roman triumph. This is what the Romans did as, as they were expanding their empire. They would go to some foreign land, they would conquer it, and then they would drag back to Rome for a huge parade all the treasures maybe exotic animals, um, uh, certainly the, um, the prisoners, and they would have a huge parade through Rome. And if, if he hadn't already been killed, at the very end of that parade, there would be the defeated king in chains, bringing up the rear, and, and to conclude the whole celebration, they would march him up in front of the, of the emperor and ceremonially execute him. Incidentally, that'll help you understand what the Romans were up to in insisting that Jesus be crucified under a sign that said King of the Jews. The point being that there will be no king above Rome, however pitiful we may imagine him to be. They wanted that message communicated loud and clear in his crucifixion that once again, Rome had disarmed a pretender to the throne. They had put him to open shame. They had triumphed over him. And yet, Paul says, let me tell you what actually happened on the cross. Let me tell you what actually happened. God was disarming the rulers and authorities. He was putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. God had a triumph on the cross. The, the eternal and everlasting king stripped the power from all the powers. He revealed who the true pretenders to the throne were, powers that had that had been beating down and bruising human beings made in the image of God under the pretense that there is no ruler or authority higher than them and that we must obey them. But on the cross of Jesus, God put those powers to open shame, to public contempt, triumphing over all those afflicting, rebellious principalities and powers, putting his foot on the neck to neck of anything that would dare to promise human beings made in the image of God life outside of him. Putting to open public humiliation the idea that there was any way to find fullness of life in God or relationship with God other than the way that he chose through grace, through Jesus Christ. The cross is a triumph. A triumph where death was put to death in the death of Jesus. And along with it, all of those soul-killing demands that the big lie tells us that we've got to make a life for ourselves. Jesus went to the cross having fulfilled every demand that we have no hope of fulfilling, and he took the fullness of punishment for our failures that should have fallen to us. That is what happened. That is the public triumph of the cross. All the rulers and authorities were defeated and shamed by God and Christ. And yet, of course, we know this, that the powers and principalities and authorities continue to rage. Do they not? How is that possible? Well, they're like rebels on the run. They, they're defeated. They're retreating. And yet, they will take their shots at you. They will swipe at you and me. They will still set out to kidnap us and throw us in the back of the van and get us away from Jesus. Not only will they do that, we find out how they'll do that. 
Paul tells us how this happens, that the powers and principalities and authorities will try to take you and me captive by, verse 14, making legal demands. In some way or another, the shot they will take at your heart and mine is to convince us that we are somehow legally bound and obligated to do more than what God has already done in Jesus Christ. So that our little twinges of conscience, our, you know, the weight of our worry, the fretfulness and the fear, on the one hand, on the other hand, in our pride, in our pomp, in our religiosity, somehow, some way, we would live as those with this functional conviction, whether we would say it out loud or not, that the grace of Jesus Christ just isn't enough. More must be done. And here's the thing, as those demands are put upon us by the culture, by our conscience, by the devil himself, often it makes a lot of sense to us. Because we know we're debtors, we feel our unworthiness, we can become convinced of the oldest and most venomous lie ever unleashed on humanity, which is simply this, prove yourself. Are you taking this seriously? I've had people leave churches because they say, you know, you talk about grace too much. It's time to get serious. I want some rules. And this is why we must run to the gospel remembering that in Jesus all the demands have been met. That the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands has been canceled. The picture here is something like having crushing student debt, you know, and you live with it. And every trip to the mailbox, you, you, you see that envelope and you know what's in it. You know what has been, you know what's owed. You know what you must, what you're obligated to pay. You know it's not going away. And you know you're probably never going to be able to pay it back. And then one day you come home and you see nailed on your front door that it is paid. It does not exist for you anymore. That is what has happened to our sin on the cross of Jesus, that it is really canceled. And because that's true, whatever invoice that lands in your mailbox or mine ever again can be thrown in the bin. It has been killed. It has been triumphed over. It has been put to shame. So as far as the Christian is concerned, the idea that you have to prove yourself or fight for God's attention or affection has no more claim over you than one of those defeated, conquered kings parading at the end of the Roman triumph who is slain before the emperor would have claimed over the emperor of Rome. That's why Paul doesn't say, as we read in our confession earlier, that there is therefore now some condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says instead, there is therefore now no condemnation. He says there's none of it. Not one demand for you to meet in order to become more beloved to God than you already are. Not one difficulty or trial for us to bear so that we, should, so that we can suffer just a little bit more for our sin. Not one single drop of wrath reserved for you and me because all of it has been accomplished on the cross of Jesus and God's great triumph. That is the larger story. That's the story that speaks to us that's the story that speaks about us. Not, not that God did away with judgment for sin, but that he did away with sin by way of judgment. A righteous one. Meted out on his sinless, beloved son, Jesus, for us and our salvation. 
so that King Jesus, instead of wielding the sword of judgment for sin against us, fell under it himself for us, taking what we deserved, that we would be delivered. That doesn't make you take sin with a lack of seriousness. It makes you take it more seriously. And it also makes you know where you need to go to actually deal with it in a life-giving way. All of us were at some time in something like a Roman procession, captive to sin, conquered by it, chained up in it, on the march toward our execution. Except that in the gospel story, whatever crimes, treacheries, and rebellion that we've been waging against God and His kingdom were not merely overlooked. They didn't simply disappear. They were finally and fully dealt with on the cross of Jesus so that the punishment due to you and me was taken by the sinless, righteous Son of God for you and me. We all wade through different circumstances in this life, and I know that, but that's the story for all of us who put our faith in Jesus, that we've died to Him. We've died with Him, and we've been made alive with Him. Because of Jesus, we can stop kissing the picture. We can embrace life. Because of Jesus, we can cease fighting the war that's already been won. Some of us, I think, are, are doing this as Christians. We've been taken captive, dragged from grace. We struggle under the law. Others of us here may not even know Jesus, and, and you sort of hear about this struggle, and you go, well, that's the way of the world. I didn't know there could be a better way. But here's something we can all do, whether you're a follower of Jesus or hearing, hearing about him for the first time, we can all run to him. We can all trust Him. We can all give up on proving ourselves and we can all put our faith in Him because there's a better story and a bigger story for you and me, one in which He's fulfilled all the demands. He's won the war. And He calls us to walk on in the same way we walked in, by grace, through faith, resting in Him, falling into His loving embrace. Let's remember that as we come to the table. Let me pray.